So just as we start tonight, I think um, I want to say something theological because we don't usually do that here. And uh, one of the things that's helpful from time to time is to remind ourselves what we mean when we use the word God uh, in religious service and in a Christian service. When we say God, we are talking about the one God that there is. There is only one God, uh, simply uh, one God, simple in himself. He has no body, no parts, and no passions as we have. He's not the same as us. He's outside of the creation. There's God, and there's everything else that there is that, that exists in relation to God. And when we think of the Holy Trinity, we're to think that within the, within the Godhead, there is the fount of life, the fount of divine life, who is the Father. When we use the language Father and Son, we're not to have in our heads the relationship of a human father to a human son. Those are two different entities. But rather, we're to think of the relation of origin within the Godhead. So it starts with the fount of the Godhead. Eternally, the Son comes from the Father without a beginning. And the Holy Spirit comes from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the Father as the circle of love, as it were, within the Holy Trinity. They are not three different entities. This happens instantly. It is the fountain of the Godhead to the Son to the Holy Spirit within the one unity of the Godhead. Because of those eternal relations of origin, when we talk about the mission of God or the missions of God, it's appropriate that the one who comes from God, the Father, should be the one to take on a human nature and to come to us to be our Savior and our Redeemer. And that's what he does. And in fact, he mirrors in his human nature, his divine origin. His divine origin is from God without anything else intervening. His human origin is from Mary without a man being involved in his conception uh, and in his birth. So his human origins give a hint of his divine origin. And he comes to be our Savior. He comes to use that human nature as his instrument by which he can purchase our salvation. His body is torn, broken on the cross, as we'll see as we gather around the table later. And the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to dwell in us, to be part of us, to to be with the Christian and in the Christian feeding and encouraging and supporting the Christian's life in the world. Now, that's not what I'm going to talk about this evening, so that was free. Uh, but I want to talk tonight, because I was asked to talk by the, uh, the committee that organized the conference, on the mission of the church. And what is the mission of the church? Uh, we would think that might have a simple answer. In our day and age, it's being uh, questioned or it's being recast in light of the rapid decline in church attendance in the Western world generally 
And the statistics in the United States are getting uh, quite disturbing. The politicizing of the church under pressure from either the left or the right uh, by the rejection of many people in the Western world particularly of the corporate nature of the church. The church is a, is a body, a corporate entity, not in the sense of a big corporation, but in the sense that it is the body of Christ. It, it is united to Christ. And uh, instead of that corporate nature of the church, there's an there's a emphasis on the individual believer. Rather than hearing the Word of God together as the church, we want to read the Bible and get our own message from the Bible for, from us, for ourselves. So what would be the mission then of the church that God has established, the body of Christ? Even using the image of the body of Christ, and you think of Jesus now exalted in heaven, so the head is in heaven, but the body acts as the head dictates. That's true of our human body, and it's true of the spiritual body of Christ. The church on earth is the body of Christ on earth. People encounter Jesus the head through his body, that is, through his church. Jesus does his work through the instrumentality of the body, that is, the church in the world. So what would the mission of the church be? Well, when you kind of look at the Bible for the answer, and you should do that always, and you should start at the very beginning of the Bible for any answer from any other part of the Bible. You go back right to the very beginning to creation, and you find God commissioning Adam to fill the earth with image bearers of God. So the idea was that he and Eve together would bear children, and these children would be perfect images of their perfect imaging of God, and that they, their children and their children and so on, and would, they would fill the earth and push the boundaries of Eden until Eden encapsulated all of the earth. And at some point in that story, the, uh, the human image bearers would be transformed and made eternal and able to live in their bodies like their, the resurrection body of Jesus for all eternity. God commissioned Adam to fill the earth with image bearers of God. When God came to Abraham a little while later, God promised Abraham a seed. That seed would be the Messiah ultimately. And through the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth. Of his children, God selected Judah as the royal line, the royal tribe, which the Messiah would come from. And to him, the Messiah would be the obedience of the nations, not just Israel, but the nations. Later on in their history, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet to the Messiah. God speaks through Isaiah to the Messiah himself and says to the Messiah in Isaiah 60, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. God revealed to Daniel that the Son of Man would come in the clouds of heaven uh, in his kingdom and that all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. 
In the New Testament, God, in Christ, commissioned the church, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God in Christ himself said, Many shall come to me from north and south and east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And this gospel must be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. And God disclosed to John the details of our heavenly home. Behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There you have the Bible in a nutshell. As you read that, as you hear that, what's the great idea? The great idea is that whatever else the mission of the church is, the scope of the church's mission is global. New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. God's purpose is a global purpose. Now, this cursory view of divine revelation points us then to the global, multicultural, multi-ethnic nature of God's purpose. And indirectly, we have a lesson on what that looks like here in John chapter 4, where the conclusion of this passage states this, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world the Savior of the world. Now, I've preached on this passage before, so I'm not going to say anything that I said before. I'm going to focus on elements that perhaps I I glanced at but didn't uh, bring to the forefront of the passage. So first of all, we're drawn to see the humanity of Jesus. Let me just pick that up right at the beginning there. Jesus sits at Jacob's well And we're told he was wearied, wearied as he was. He's been journeying. His flesh is tired. His body is fatigued. You've ever known that? Or you've had COVID and you've known COVID fatigue? And I had it before we knew it was COVID way back in 2019 after my son brought it to America, I think, uh, from London to New York and was ill for the whole time he was with us, and we didn't know what was wrong with him. We had not seen these symptoms ever before. And when he went back home, they, he went to see his doctor, who discovered that he had pneumonia and various other things were associated with COVID, but he didn't know what it was. And the doctor said to him, I've seen four people with the same symptoms. I've no idea what it is. Anyway, when he left, I got this fatigue... One of the ladies of the congregation came round to see Christine and I, and I fell fast asleep in the chair. Uh, I've never done that in my life before, but there you go. That's, that's irrelevant to our sermon tonight, but there you are. Uh, Jesus was tired. He was fatigued. And that's significant for us because Jesus, in his fatigue, 
will pass salvation on to this woman and to the people of Sychar, or Shechem, as its old name was. And it's through his human nature and its weakness that he will be pinned to the cross, and through that broken human nature, his being made flesh, he will become our Savior. Now, he meets the woman at the well. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that there are a number of meetings at wells that take place. Jacob met, met Rachel, his wife, at a well. Moses met Zipporah, his wife, at a well. Israel met God when he caused the water to gush forth from a rock in the wilderness. Water becomes a token of the eternal life that God gives freely to his people. Thomas Wynandia, a great commentator on on these things, points us to the, the Bible verses that presage this event here in John chapter 4. For example, when in Psalm 36, the steadfast love of God grants to his people that they should drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Or Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Because God is our salvation, Isaiah says, with joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation. And God promises in Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit out and my blessing on your offspring. The Holy Spirit in Isaiah 55 calls on everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. The prophet Jeremiah complains, or God does through Jeremiah, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So all this and more is the background to this incident. Jesus has come deliberately to this well at this time to meet this woman. And he has come with a water of life. You notice in the introduction, did you, that there's a reference to baptizing. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Waters in the theme of this passage right from the very beginning. And Jesus comes to this woman and he offers us the water of life that will quench her thirst, not momentarily, but eternally. And he says to her, verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst again. It will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We're told that he met her about the sixth hour. And it was in the sixth hour that Pilate would hand Jesus over to be crucified. So we learn from that that ultimately it will be from the cross, through the cross, that eternal life will flow, just as the blood and water flowed from his wounded side. The woman's response, Sir, she says. The word she uses there is the word that is often used to translate the word Adonai. That was the word the Jews used to avoid saying the proper name of God, which is unpronounceable to us and known only by the four letters, the tetragrammaton. 
She doesn't know what she's doing, but inadvertently, she is using for this one a substitute name for God. And she points out to Jesus that he has no earthly means of drawing water. She asks him this question, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob? Jacob was the last of the patriarchs. Jacob is the one who names the Israel of God. He was renamed Israel. He gives his name to the covenant people of God. We are the Israel of God. We are named after Jacob. But Jesus exceeds all the patriarchs. John tells us right in the very first chapter that he is full of divine life, full of divine life. Grace upon grace flow from him. Rivers of grace. The crashing waves of grace that come from him and dash upon our lives to renew them all come from him. He is the eternal life-giving spring. Now she's still thinking literally and she asks for real physical water. And it's at that point that Jesus raises the stakes. He says, go call your husband and come here. She responds, honestly, I have no husband. Jesus confirms her reply, then goes on to demonstrate that he knows her inside out. Sir, she says, I perceive that you are more than a prophet. She has gone a long way from seeing him as a Jew and wondering why a Jew would even have a conversation, number one, with a woman who isn't his wife, and number two, with a Samaritan woman, the despised Samaritans. Jews have no interaction with the Samaritans. She's gone from seeing him like that to listening to what he says to now wondering whether he is a prophet and now to be thinking, you are more than a prophet. And so she asks him a theological question. The Samaritans worshipped God in Gerizim, not Jerusalem. They had their own temple there in, in Samaria at Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, not They didn't recognize, so they didn't have anything to do with the temple in Jerusalem. And it's at that point in verses 21 to 24 that Jesus speaks to her in his capacity as the Word of God incarnate, the Word of God in the flesh. He says to her, this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship, we Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's telling her to believe him. Believe me, he says. Believe me. He's asking for her to put her faith in him by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's telling her that the place to worship is about to change. No longer will people be able to point to the land or any land, any land, anywhere, and say God resides in that land and only in that land. Jesus is making it clear that at that stage in the development 
of the faith. God could be found only in Jewish lands and in the Jewish temple. But he's telling her that the time has come for that to change. God will no longer be tied to any piece of real estate here. He doesn't disguise the fact that though the Samaritans worship God, they're ignorant of God because they, they've missed out on the bulk of the Old Testament. They only, they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. So they missed out on the prophets and the wisdom literature and so on. Whereas the Jews had more information. We worship what we know. And God promised salvation would come from the Jews. They should know that from their own scriptures. Going back to Genesis. Where, uh, where God promises that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. Salvation is from the Jews. In fact, she's going to learn that the one she's talking to, this Jew she's talking to, is the one whose name is Adonai saves. God saves. God is the Savior. That's his name. And now the hour has come for the faithful to worship God as God in spirit and in truth. Now that doesn't mean your body is not a part of what it means to worship God. We use our voices to express uh, prayer and praise. We use our bodies to indicate awe and reverence. We bow our heads. Some churches, they kneel. Uh, But there will also be an interior spiritual engagement with God. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promises to us. And it's at this point then that Jesus spells out what the process of the mission is. What is the purpose of the mission? The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What is the mission of the church? It is to gather worshipers of God. It is to gather worshipers of God. And this pushes the Samaritan woman further in her thinking. She says to him, well, I know that when Messiah is coming, I know that when he comes, he will show us all things. But Jesus, you see, is standing in front of her. What we've learned, what we learned early on in John's Gospel in chapter 118 is that he has come particularly to show us the Father. Here's how it reads. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, eternally of the Father. He will make him known. Later in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus will say, Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And now listen to him as he speaks to the woman. He reveals himself 
for who he is. I who speak to you, I am. Those are the Greek words, ego, I me. They translate in the Greek the words God gave to Moses when Moses said, who are you? God says, I am, that I am. Go and tell them, I am, sent you. God is the one who is. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is. All of us become God is. We come into existence. God is. And he's introducing himself to her as the great I am who revealed himself to Moses. Well, she goes off back to the village. The disciples return and they're horrified. They're horrified as they come over the hill and they see Jesus at the well alone with a woman who's a Samaritan. The language indicates they're scandalized by this. And meanwhile, the woman has left her water jar, gone back into the city and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Everything. And everything got their attention. What she had hoped for was that they would begin to believe what she had come to see as true, that this Jesus, this man, this Jew, was the Messiah. While all this is going on in the village, Jesus enigmatically speaks to his disciples there in verses 34 to 38. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. And I think at that moment, the people coming from the village down towards them. Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus speaks He addresses them. He doesn't say we. He's distancing himself from the disciples. Normally it takes four months before there's a harvest. But because Jesus is present as the incarnate word, the reaping of salvation is close at hand. Already, though they don't know it, the work of the Father is being done. Jesus has come in the world to do the hard labor By his death and resurrection, he will gather the fruit to eternal life. Later in chapter 12, he will call himself the seed that must fall to the ground and die before it can sprout up with life, the life of the kingdom of God. He's come to sow his own body, as it were, to lay his own body in the ground as you would plant a piece of a seed uh, for a plant in your garden. And he says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of God who sent me and to finish his work. The fields are white, he said. 
Here are the Samaritans streaming to Jesus. We read, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They heard her report. They put their faith in him. The woman is portrayed in the story as the first non-Jewish evangelist. One of the very first people, very first people in the Gospels to gather fruit for eternal life, to bring a family, to bring a village to Jesus. Jesus has taught her salvation is of the Jews. But she, by her action, teaches us that although salvation is of the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah, it is for the whole world. It is for the whole world, even for despised Samaritans. It's for Muslims and Hindus and Confucianists and secularists and communists and fascists. It's for anyone and everyone. It's for the whole world. It's even for the English. In John chapter 1, the first two Jewish disciples wanted to know where Jesus was staying. Having stayed with him, Andrew went and found Peter to tell him they'd found the Messiah. And so here we read, even the Samaritans, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So when Jesus gave that great commission that we usually talk about in Mission Sundays, when he sent the church out to make disciples of all nations. He tells them how to do it, baptizing them in the triune name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an application of water. You know that, don't you? We don't use very much of it here. When I was a Baptist, I used a lot of it. Uh, but much or little, water is the, sig- the significant thing. And the water image continues throughout John's gospel. It begins in chapter 1 with John baptizing. It moves to chapter 2 where Jesus turns gallons of water into gallons of wine. Thus, as it were, drawing a link between baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is there, first of all, to cleanse us becomes that which represents the blood of Christ for us. Or in the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Or in chapter 7, where Jesus stands up in the great day of the feast, and he says that he has come to bring rivers of living water that will sprout up from deep inside you to eternal life. And even in John chapter 1, John the Baptist identifies Jesus. He baptizes, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. The water represents the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He satisfies the parts of us that nothing else will. And in clarification, in John 7, Jesus spoke about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The world needs to know about God, that he is the Trinity, that he is the one who has sent the Son and the Spirit for our salvation, that the saving work of God is of the Father through the Son by the Spirit, and that the water that speaks of eternal life is the gift that is represented by baptism, which is the outward visible sign of an inward and invisible grace, that is the seal and the sign of all the things that the water represents in Scripture, the cleansing, the presence of the Holy Spirit, our union with Jesus Christ, the life of God in the soul of a man or a woman. That's what mission, the mission of the church is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given to us this great and precious promise uh, of everlasting life. And we pray that tonight we would know ourselves to have received it, that we would rejoice in it, Lord. Even now as we partake of these elements and as we seek to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. In his strong name we pray. Amen.